Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the April 1st, 2022 episode of Unchained. Coin change is the easiest way to earn passive income using crypto. You can safely deposit cash or cryptocurrencies to earn up to 20% annual yield. There is no lending or market risk, just simple, high return yield farming. Create an account today at trydefi.cc slash UNC and receive 40 USDC. That's trydefi.cc slash UNC. If you're frustrated that your bank account isn't crypto friendly, it's time to make a change. On Juno is a powerful new checking account that lets you buy, spend, and earn in crypto. It's free to open an account and even comes with a metal card. Download the OnJuno app today. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Today's guest is Arjun Buptani, founder of Connect Network. Welcome, Arjun. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. This week, we saw the largest hack in DeFi history, a $625 million hack, uh, which was 176,300 Ether and 25.5 million USDC. And this involved the Ronin network. Tell us what the Ronin network is and what happened in the hack. So the Ronin network, I apologize to the Ronin team if I don't get this exactly right, but uh, the Ronin network is, a, is an Ethereum sidechain that is built to host the, the Axie ecosystem, um, which is one of the largest like play to earn games in the world right now. The Ronin uh, chain itself is like run by a decentralized set of validators, but then Ronin has its own Ronin bridge, which connects Ethereum to the Ronin chain. Um, and the hack specifically was a hack of the Ronin bridge, where Ronin bridges, you know, has has, uh, has nine validators and uh, requires a five out of nine threshold signature to to be able to like complete transactions between chains. And five all, five of those validators were compromised, uh, leading to six hundred fifty million dollars being stolen from the bridge itself. Wow! And how was this money moved? It was literally just they pretended to be all these validators. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where things get interesting. So, general. So this is this is basically it's an exa- This is an example of a multi sig bridge where you have a certain number of signers that are responsible for saying that something happened on one chain and then relaying it to another chain. And in this case, it was specifically associated with funds, but it really could be like any kind of data. In this case, all you know, nine of the people who are validating the Ronin Bridge were people associated with the Axie ecosystem in, in different ways. So there's like, like some that were run by the Axie DAO and some that were run by, I think, the Ronin team and, and others. And, uh, and what ended up happening was 
Um, there's a combination of two things that led to this attack. Four, and there aren't exactly clear details on everything at the moment, but four of the validators uh, were compromised all at once. It's unclear whether this was because they were using, they were all run by the same people. Um, and it was unclear whether this was because they were using like the same key management system um, or something else. Um, and then in addition to that, one validator that was run by the Axie DAO was also compromised. And, uh, and I think the four that were compromised were compromised because in the past, there had been a, an RPC that like a, basically like a whitelisted specialized RPC that had been set up um, by the Axie ecosystem that was a gas-free RPC. And an RPC is? Uh, a connection to the blockchain. And so uh, they had set up a specialized connection to the blockchain, a specialized node that people could actually uh, send transaction through that was not charging transaction fees, um, that was subsidizing the cost of transactions. And that was no longer being used, but that RPC had not actually been removed from the whitelist um, for, for the last couple of years. And what, actually, what happened in this case was that the, it, it sounds like, and again, this is, this, this is only high-level information that has been shared by SkyMavis, but it sounds like the, uh, that specific uh, RPC was compromised and uh, leading to those four signers signing an incorrect message. Um, so the, the RPC basically requested that these signers would sign a message that was actually a false message designed to exit funds from the bridge that shouldn't have been exited. Wow. And um, just, I, I think you might have misspoke when you said that the whitelist access hadn't been revoked for a few years. It was, I think, a few months. It was in December of 2021 that they stopped using it? Or... Yes, sorry. That was that was when they stopped using it. But the whitelist, I think it, the access had initially been given in 2019. If I'm if I'm okay, correct. Right, but I think. Yeah. Am I wrong that that's when the whitelist access should have been revoked? Uh, no, 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 you're right. You're you're right that it should have been revoked in 2021. Yep. Okay. So one other thing that people were really shocked by is the fact that the hack actually hadn't been discovered for six days. How is that possible? Yeah, that is a good question. I don't know. I think it's it's a bit of a failure to not have like the monitoring and alerting in place to be able to discover this. I think it's also astounding that nobody found out. Just, you know, I think like this this community tends to be very very diligent about these sorts of things and I think also typically, you know, you when you have this large of a of an ecosystem of users, uh, at some point someone ends up checking the the balances on on EtherScan and sees, wait, this is a lot lower than it should have been. So it's unclear exactly how it remained undiscovered for that long, but it is definitely a massive oversight regardless. <laughs> so the main culprit in this hack, most people believe, was social engineering as opposed to kind of what we typically see in a DeFi hack. Just explain kind of maybe what a typical DeFi hack, um, how, that, how that is typically perpetrated, and then what social engineering is. Absolutely. So normally, when you are using a DeFi protocol, you're interacting with the contracts associated with the DeFi protocol itself. And those, those contracts don't, you know, and I'll, I'll get into like, maybe those contracts may be owned by a multisig or something like that. And that's, that's definitely a, an attack vector. But typically, the contracts themselves are, are just an implementation of the protocol that has been audited and thoroughly vetted in theory. And so you, you trust kind of the implementation of the protocol itself. 
And when it, when a DeFi hack happens, it's usually an attacker finding something in the core protocol code uh, in in Solidity or whatever that that was implemented incorrectly, and then actually maliciously executing that code to be able to uh, with you know withdraw funds from the system without having having permission to do so. Now, of course, DeFi protocols can also have like multi-sig owners, uh, and this is this is true for a lot of like the the DeFi DAOs in the space right now, or uh, or even for some of the chains where you have a multi-sig that is actually controls upgradeability into this contract and things like that. So that adds a little bit an, another layer of risk, which is that even if the core protocol itself is is secure, uh, the multi-sig itself may not be. In this case, it was a little bit different, where it's like you had only the multi-sig and no underlying protocol, um, and the multi-sig itself. While multi-sig implementations are pretty robust now, and we can be generally safe in, in assuming that they that they're that they're not going to be be hacked unless you're like really uh, building something complicated from scratch, or or you know in the case of like the wormhole hack, uh, you're dealing with dependencies on a, on another chain that are slightly different, and you may not necessarily know what those dependencies are doing. In this case, what ended up happening was something a little bit different, which was off-chain, completely separately from the code implementation, uh, you had. Basically, you compromise the multi-sig signers themselves, and uh, and the attacker was was able to get control of the system by figuring out who are the people running, who are the people who are able to sign for these transactions, and how can I specifically target um, some subset of them to steal funds. That's a really interesting change. Um, I, I think, generally speaking, we haven't seen too many of these kinds of attacks in DeFi, largely because I think, in my opinion, at least in my opinion, like. Usually, by the, by this point, like the the kind of key management systems and things like that are are pretty robust. But even even in addition to that, like having a five out of nine multi sig system that is hosting this amount of money is is a massive amount of risk. And so people typically have been able to like avoid this kinds of social engineering. But I think a, a large part of it also comes down to the fact that hackers are becoming more sophisticated in the first place. Um, and so you know they're realizing that there are more easy attack vectors than simply trying to attack the contracts themselves. And the, uh, ultimately, and this is something that's true wi- widely in the security space, humans are the biggest vulnerability. Um, and like having, having humans in the equation really is a, the biggest problem that you would need to solve in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly, obviously, I'm not going to claim that I'm like some master impresario with my own passwords, but I, I recognize that that, you know, I'm sure all of us recognize that that is our own vulnerability. And famously, um, Stefan Thomas of Ripple had accidentally locked away his Bitcoins because he came up with some really, really fancy password and uh, used that to lock a device that um, after 10 attempts would completely lock him out of his funds if if he didn't remember it. And then he didn't remember it. And he was down to like seven or eight. Uh, he had done seven or eight tries was down to the last few. But anyway, so in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, the bridge security issue. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. There's been a lot of buzz around getting paid in crypto. And it's easy with OnJuno, the all-in-one crypto and banking app. You can set up a direct deposit and earn a portion of your paycheck in crypto. You get 10% back when you spend USDC with the OnJuno card, as well as a 4% yield on your USDC. Not to mention, you can buy crypto with zero fees. All of this from an FDIC-insured checking account. 
On Juno integrates directly with your direct deposit system, has no transaction fees, and is already being used by employees of some of the biggest tech companies like Google, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft. It's free to open an account, and today you can get $50 added to your first direct deposit using code Laura. Download the On Juno app today. That's O N J U N O, and use code Laura. For $50. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description back to my conversation with Arjun. So last piece on this social engineering bit, Muda Gupta, chief information security officer of Polygon tweeted, I'm 99% sure that the hacker is someone seasoned with a lot of cybersecurity experience, not a crypto degen kid. So can you just explain what he meant there? Yeah. Um, I think this, this kind of goes back to what I was saying, where it's like, there are a very, very large number of social engineering and phishing and other kinds of similar, like economic, even 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 economic attacks that happen in in crypto. Most of them don't happen at this kind of scale, and so we we haven't historically had to talk about them as much. But you know, we we have a Discord full of people in our community who get scammed all the time, and like we we you know we try to to educate them about like, okay, don't give people your private key, don't do X Y Z, don't approve random uh, websites uh, to spend your tokens. Um, but these are these are all like crypto specific challenges that I think there's a massive information asymmetry around. In this case, I think you know the fact that we weren't dealing with those kinds of lower level scams and like phishing attempts, um, and we weren't dealing with either, also not dealing with like somebody just hacked up some solidity contracts that they happened to like look at, and it was a you know it was some typically those hacks end up being something associated with like either a mistake in the implementation or some sort of like flash loan attack or something like that. But instead, this was much more, much, much more sophisticated. Um, you know, the the attacker knew a lot about these systems. They knew a lot about the breakdown of the signers in the Ronin Bridge. They knew exactly who controlled what keys, and they knew how to specifically go after those people. Now, of course, it was a failure. It is absolutely a massive security failure that four of the keys were actually controlled by the same core set of people. Uh, in the same environment, and so so that automatically dramatically reduces your your security, right? It turns this, uh, you know, uh, five out of uh, of nine multisig into a, a two out of five uh, system because all you really need to do is compromise all four of those people at once. But even beyond that, the the way in which those people were compromised is is very interesting. This attacker recognized that there is this deprecated RPC that people are not using anymore. Realized that they could spoof a signature through that and utilize that to get four of the signatures that's that that uh, betrays a a level of understanding not just of crypto um, but also of like like the deep intricacies of like the the security systems and security groups that were that were likely set up for all of these rp for, for the rpc itself and then also the validators i think the the evidence here points to the fact that this is this is like this is obviously a much more sophisticated attack right this is like level of uh, in many cases, exchange exchange attacks rather than what you would typically see in a DeFi attack, where this likely required quite a bit of like meticulous planning and wasn't just, oh, I discovered something in the contracts, some artifact of the contracts that just happened to be there. 
Yeah, it sort of reminds me of the Binance one, um, where they must have like cased it for a while. Yeah. So Sky Mavis announced that it would like to reimburse all the people who lost money. How likely do you think it is that they will either do this or be able to do it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, in, in, in previous instances, like, uh, like again, wormholes is the most recent one that comes to mind. Uh, you had, you know, someone financially backing the system who was able to like drop hundreds of millions of dollars to, to like keep the system operational after the hack happened. In this case, uh, it's, I don't know if Sky Mavis has that kind of institutional backing that where someone would be willing to drop that kind of money. That said, they are a, a very large organization that is generating generating a lot of revenue, um, and I think that that's that says something. I think the other the other piece of this is is also a question of like when they would be able to reimburse. So, for instance, even if they're not able to do it right now, it's it's pretty highly likely that through chain analysis, this attacker would either be found or at least some of the funds would be returned because realistically, it's going to be extremely difficult to launder six hundred fifty million dollars. Even if you use, even if you use tornado cash, that's it's there's there, you can't really build an anonymity, anonymity set large enough to cover uh, that amount of funds at the moment. And uh, and like in general, it's it's unclear whether you know th- this could go in the direction of some of the the old exchange hacks where it just sort of like lies in somebody's wallet for a very long period of time until authorities are able to track track the wallet down. Um, and I think in this case, uh, this wallet had specifically interacted with FTX. Uh, in the past, it's most likely a, a, like a, a falsified account, but that, that does give authorities uh, some lead into figuring out who the attacker might be. Yeah, I honestly, whenever I see something like this, I'm a little bit like, don't you know you're not going to be able to use that money? <laughs> you know. But anyway, so there's been so many hacks of bridges recently. Why don't you just explain a little bit further, you know, what exactly a bridge is and why it is that bridges seem to be where so many of the DeFi hacks are centered nowadays. So bridges are basically mechanisms to communicate between chains. They have varying levels of security and varying levels of functionality. Um, I think, you know, if you if you kind of rewind to a couple of years ago, like most most bridges were just like very, very, very simple structures that were set up to be able to interact with some side chain or something like that. And they were typically run by the team. Uh, like the the chains team itself, which was in in this case w- was true as well, but they were typically run by the chains team itself, and they were typically just like limited to the transferring of of certain specific kinds of funds. Today, bridges are starting to get a lot more sophisticated in some ways, uh, but not in others. Um, I think in general, people are recognizing that that like allowing communication between chains is actually a really, really incredibly valuable thing because we're we're starting to move towards this world where it's not really possible to scale or people are realizing it's not really possible to scale to meet the the requirements of, of the market only on a single chain so we're, we're kind of like fragmenting uh, like applications and the execution on those applications to all of these different environments and now this brings up this this much more interesting problem of how do you how do you actually make it easy for users to get between these different places you know if i'm if i'm using an application on ethereum um how do i go and and like interact with uh, you know and i have all my funds on ethereum how do i go and interact with with uh with another application running on Polygon. And most importantly, how do I do that in a way where users are not you know, putting themselves into a significant amount of risk or, or uh, the other end of the spectrum having to deal with this like very, very complicated process where they might not really even understand what's going on. 
one thing that has happened in the last you know couple of years is that there's been this massive proliferation of a specific type of bridge, which is multi-sig bridges, uh, which is basically at, at a high level is is a bridge where you have a certain subset of people uh, or a certain set of people, and then a certain subset of people are able to of, of that group are able to verify that something happened across chains correctly. Um, and there's a there's a bunch of different mechanisms for doing this. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, simple multi-sigs, there's threshold signers, there's MPC systems, which is multi-party computation, and then there's like POS bridges. But effectively, they have the same rough idea, which is like this group of people is responsible for taking a, like data from here and putting it over here, data or funds. Now, the risk of multi-sig bridges is you have this validator set associated with the bridges. In the, in the case of, of the Ronin bridge, it was the nine, the nine kind of signers in, in this, uh, uh, or in the Ronin bridge multi-sig. And, uh, and that validator set is likely very different than the set of people that are validating the chains themselves underlying. And in most cases, I have, I've yet to come across very many cases where this is not true, um, that validator set is typically much weaker, uh, as in from an economic security standpoint, um, it's a smaller num number of people that are more likely to be corruptible with less money at stake than the underlying chain. And I think that will probably remain true into the long term for, for chains like Ethereum, where you know, there's, it's very, very unlikely that if you go and you build a multi-sig bridge today, that you'll ever be able to achieve the level of decentralization and security as Ethereum. Because uh, Ethereum is by far the most secure chain, um, more, most secure programmable chain out there right now. Now, the, uh, the, the kind of necessary conclusion of this is that like, bridges are this security vulnerability. They are, because at least the way that they're constructed right now, you, you can have these chains and attacking these chains is extremely difficult, but the bridges represent this like one chink in the armor where like you can potentially go and steal very, very significant amounts of funds from a chain. And, uh, and uh, because now that, that ecosystem, uh, the, or at least that, that bridge is, is, uh, is just much more easily attackable than anything else in the space. This wasn't necessarily true for, for like DeFi protocols building on top of chains either, because for a DeFi protocol, you know, as long as the implementation is correct, and I, I want to couch that in, couch you know my my statement in that because that's always true for any 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 kind of thing that you build. But as long as the implementation is correct, you can trust that the the DeFi project is inheriting the security of the underlying chain, um, which is usually very very strong. So that I think kind of gets into why we're starting to see a lot of bridge hacks. Is uh, is you know this is new technology. Um, it's at the moment being constructed in a way which is very very high risk and is a significant step down in security com compared to the chains. And uh, it's also growing incredibly fast because this, this market has just exploded out of nowhere for, for interoperability, for communication across chains. Now, there are better ways to make bridges. And I think that that's something that people are now starting to realize. I think this is the, uh, you know, the conversation first started with the wormhole bridge hack uh, a little while ago, and now it's, it's accelerated. And I'm seeing an increasing number of people kind of saying, we need better bridges. We need better systems out there that, that aren't necessarily going to rely on um, you know, some external set of validators that could be compromised. And, and it's like, even if, even if they're not compromised, even if you have excellent key management, at some point, you know, it, it's a honeypot. Like at some point, there's, a, there's enough money in the bridge that, you know, if you, if you have the set of people that are running the bridge, now there's five people controlling billions and billions of dollars. That's, that's, that's an objectively bad situation. And that kind of defeats the purpose of crypto in the first place. And so I think people are kind of realizing that this is, uh, this is an unsustainable direction. Um, we, we need to figure out some mechanism for building bridges where you aren't necessarily going to add this additional security assumption. Um, and I can, I can kind of like jump into that if you think that'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah, please do. 
I kind of touched on multi-sig bridges as like one of the one of the bridges and the the early really like the earliest kind of mechanism of bridging that is out there in the space today. But now uh, through through a lot of research that's happening in this space, um, and we're kind of we're trying to contribute to this as well with Connects, we are starting to see that there are other mechanisms for cross-chain communication. The other kind of simple one that that has been around for a really long time is atomic swaps, um, and that's been just talked about for ages. And it's a, it is a it is a secure bridging mechanism. It's a secure like um, I guess swapping mechanism because uh, we we have understood the constraints and the, the risks around it for a long time, and and because the risk of of an atomic swap is compartmentalized to the people that are that are uh, that are kind of swapping with each other. But even beyond that, if you want to go past like simple atomic swaps to like I want to be able to do more arbitrary data passing between chains, or I want to be able to like have this connection between chains that is more that doesn't require having like a counterparty. That's when you get into like more interesting kinds of bridges. So. Um, the first one that that is that I think a lot of people are really uh, are starting to become familiar with is IBC, which is the 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 cross chain communication mechanism in Cosmos. And what IBC uses is is uh, with IBC you have Cosmos chains basically natively validating each other. Um, you you run a light client of one chain in another chain, um, and that light client verifies the consensus of the other chain. And so you can be generally very very confident that the consensus. Uh, because you verified the data com- fr- coming from the other chain and the, the entire validator set of, of the Cosmos chain is verifying the data from the other Cosmos chain, you can be generally very confident that the security of the system ultimately just will trickle down to the security of the chains themselves, which is really like the ideal. Now, there's drawbacks to this. Um, and the primary drawback is just that it, it's a bespoke solution. Building a light client for a chain means you have to understand, or for basically to communicate with another chain means you have to understand that other chain's consensus mechanism, and you have to be able to replicate that consensus mechanism within the first chain. That's not, not only not possible in many cases, but it's also extremely difficult to do for every chain. So if you, you know, if you kind of like zoom out of simply Cosmos to the rest of the ETH ecosystem, uh, and Avalanche and all of these other ecosystems out there, it's extremely heterogeneous. And so that means you would have to build custom implementations on each chain to be able to, to run IBC everywhere. I think it's, it's likely that people will work towards something like that, but it's, that's not really a solution that's going to be able to be fixed or, or at least like be functional within the next like couple of years. I think it'll just take lots and lots of research and work to get to that point. The other, the other kind of bridge that I think uh, a lot of people have started to be really interested in is zero-knowledge bridges. Um, so you know, uh, uh, similar to, to IBC in a kind of a like client based bridge, um, utilize zero-knowledge proofs to basically validate that the the data coming from one chain is correct. Now, in effect, what you're doing with a zero-knowledge bridge is actually very, very similar to what you're doing with like client bridge, except it's, it's heavily optimized. Um, and there are some like, slightly different trust considerations. With a zero-knowledge bridge, you are also like, verifying consensus. And I think, I think that, once again, brings up this like, core problem of, like, okay, how you're going to have to do this custom implementation for every chain. And I think uh, in zero-knowledge, in zero this actually is exacerbated by the fact that there are some kinds of consensus mechanisms that cannot be proven in zero knowledge um, because of how they work. And so in those cases, you do have to actually have something like a finality gadget, um, which, which basically introduces another trust assumption um, that, that is now another external set of people that, uh, that are verifying that something happened that can be an attack vector. Uh, and so I, in my opinion, I think zero knowledge bridges are, are probably uh, like a, are sort of like a lot of people talk about them as a holy grail, but I think that they they have their own set of drawbacks that, that will make it difficult for them to really work in the interim before we kind of get there. In the same way that like, you know, people, the same, the same sort of like criticisms that have been levied towards like zero knowledge rollups versus optimistic rollups being that, you know, uh, 
it just takes time to build zero knowledge systems. Like these things, this is new, very fundamentally new math that is still being discovered while we're doing it. And so it'll take time to get to the point where it's like easily applicable everywhere. The last kind of bridge, and this is the one that I have been uh, admittedly showing a lot on Twitter, is, uh, is optimistic bridges. And I, I really like this construction because I think it's, it's, it gives us the best in-class solution today that we can use to fix the, the kind of uh, massive systemic risks around multi-sig bridges without having to spend years and years and years of research uh, to get to the point where we have these like fleshed out constructions for zero knowledge or like client bridges. And basically with an optimistic bridge, it's a, it's a similar kind of construction and has borrows very heavily from concepts uh, from, from like optimistic rollups, where uh, rather than saying that you have a certain set, set of people that is like porting data from here to here, or uh, you have, you know, uh, the chain on the receiving, like the receiving chain kind of validating the data natively. Instead, you just uh, relay that data optimistically. You just go ahead and push it to, to the receiving chain. And then you, uh, you have a cooldown period. So you have a, you have a period of 30 minutes within which um, anyone who is kind of watching this interaction can go and prove fraud. Now, this is powerful because it means that unlike with a multi-sig bridge where you have, uh, an, it's an N of M system. So you have to, you know, you, could, you, you only need to corrupt N people to be able to take control of the system. With a, with a optimistic bridge, it's a one of M system, which means uh, a one of M honest party system, which means you would need to go and figure out throughout the entire world, if there is anyone anonymously watching the chain to prove fraud. And if the only way to be sure that you doing fraud, like you, you know, fraudulently making a state update, fraudulently pushing a transaction through this bridge would succeed, would be if you could be sure that there was no one else in the world that was going to, to try to contest your fraudulent transaction. And fundamentally, it's impossible to do that, right? That's uh, it, it sort of, the, no amount of money that you, there's a fixed a theoretical amount of money that you could pay to uh, to corrupt or bribe a certain number, like an N of M bridge uh, or a multi-sig bridge. But there is no amount of money that you could pay to find out that there is not a single person in the world somewhere uh, anonymously that could prove fraud and 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 penalize you. And uh, and similar to, to rollups, you know, the the um, if you do commit fraud, uh, there is a a penalty, a slashing penalty that is applied to the person that did that fraud. Right. The only thing about it is like when we were talking about how it took six days to find this hack, like the 30 minute window seems kind of short, <laughs> but I guess it's that people would be incentivized in some fashion and they could earn money. Whereas like there was no amount of money that people could have earned if they discovered is that the difference? Yeah, it's that, that's the difference. And also that like in this case, like I, you know, this is, this is kind of gets into the like remove humans from the equation, uh, piece, which is, you know, in, in the case of people not discovering this hack for six days, it was likely because there were just no automated systems in place to, to even alert that this had happened. Um, whereas in the, in the, you know, in the optimistic bridge case, you, you basically build infrastructure called watchers that are just watching the chain full time. And all they're doing is tracking the system to approve fraud. And the, this is actually pretty much the exact same way that optimistic rollups work as well. So in an optimistic rollup, uh, a, the rollup sequencer, which is the person who is responsible for taking data from the rollup and pushing it to Ethereum, could, in theory, create fraudulent updates. They could, in theory, do that. Um, but you have this this network of of, uh, of watchers, people like basically people who are verifying this chain uh, or verifying this rollup, who are just watching to make sure that the data that is pushed to Ethereum matches with the data that is that is on the rollup. And if 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 that isn't true, then then those watchers would like 
basically start start a, a dispute. They would they would prove that fraud on chain, and then that would cause the rollup sequencer to be slashed. The exact same principles are were kind of like carried over to this ecosystem or to 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 bridging to create optimistic bridges as a construction. Okay, well, we will probably see how bridges start to move forward to shore up their security because I definitely don't think that the current state of things is going to continue for very long. We probably will still see more hacks while they're sorting it out, but hopefully not. This has been a super fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for illuminating all of us about this hack. Yeah, no problem. And if if folks are interested in learning more about Optimistic Bridges, I have a blog post that should be coming out definitely before this this show goes live. So absolutely check that out because I think it'll give a really good explanation of of the kinds of trade-offs between this kind of system or even even more generally other kinds of more secure bridging systems versus versus multi-sig systems. Great. And will that be on your Medium page or where will that be? Yes, that would be on the Connects Medium page. So it'll be blog.connects.network. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. It's time to bring Wall Street to Main Street. CoinChange is democratizing access to wealth management with low-risk, high-return, passive income through DeFi. It's simple. Just deposit your crypto into a CoinChange high-yield account to earn more over time. Your yield is paid out daily and can be withdrawn anytime. CoinChange's yield farming doesn't utilize lending or other risky strategies. No minimums, no obligations, just high yield. It's time for a change. Create an account today at trydefi.cc slash unc to receive 40 USDC. That's trydefi.cc slash unc. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. The SEC's DeFi shadow attack. A 200-page proposal published by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission on Tuesday could spell significant trouble for DeFi despite not mentioning DeFi once. The SEC's proposal would change the definition of a government securities dealer to include entities that provide more than $50 million in liquidity. While not written to explicitly mention digital assets, the proposal could bring DeFi participants like automated market makers and liquidity providers under the jurisdiction of the SEC. According to Delphi Digital's Gabriel Shapiro, this is an all-out shadow attack on decentralized finance by the SEC. Shapiro believes that the regulator's proposal would characterize AMM liquidity providers as unregistered dealers, a felony in the U.S. SEC will argue that all AMM LPs are unregistered dealers. That would be like saying all Bitcoin miners are VASPs, virtual asset service providers. If enforced, it would kill the tech. Many of us warned SEC could take this view, but never thought they'd secretly rewrite the rules to avoid having to prove it, Shapira argued. The Blockchain Association's Jake Chervinsky had a similar take on Twitter. The SEC just proposed a rule that would expand the definition of regulated dealers to include people who employ passive market-making strategies that have the effect of providing liquidity to others. In addition to this week's 200-page proposal, the DeFi Education Fund 
which was somewhat infamously spun out of Uniswap's treasury, took to Twitter to warn against a 591-page proposal that includes danger signs for DeFi. In a nutshell, while DEF is unsure what the final implications of the proposal would be if passed, the proposal has the potential to require any organization, association, or group of persons that makes available a communication protocol system to comply with financial regulations designed for organizations like the New York Stock Exchange if the CPS allows people to interact and agree to terms of a trade. DEF pointed out the language is so broad that even the proposal itself clarifies web chat providers like Facebook Messenger and utilities like cell phones, which could meet the novel definition of a CPS, would not be required to register as securities exchanges. The public has until April 18th to comment, which DEF, along with other crypto lawyers, has been promoting quite hard on Twitter. Institutional SAT stacks substantially increased this week. As covered in this week's episode of Unchained with Do Kwan, the Luna Foundation Guard is converting a $3 billion treasury into Bitcoin with the express purpose of building a Forex reserve for Terra's algorithmic stablecoin, UST. This week, Coindesk was able to confirm Luna Foundation Guard's BTC wallet. According to blockchain data, the wallet currently holds over 30,000 BTC, worth well over $1 billion. BitInfoCharts data shows that LFG is now the 29th largest Bitcoin address. However, as noted on Unchained and elsewhere, LFG has plans to expand its Bitcoin holdings to $10 billion and wants to become the second largest holder of Bitcoin outside of Satoshi. Not to be outdone by Terra, software firm MicroStrategy announced that one of its subsidiaries, cheekily named MacroStrategy, closed on a $205 million loan from Silvergate Bank to buy more Bitcoin using its already purchased Bitcoin as collateral. MicroStrategy reported having 125,051 Bitcoin on its balance sheet in February 2022, to which this $205 million loan will add. OpenSea to support Solana NFTs Solana NFTs will be supported by OpenSea, the largest NFT marketplace by volume this month. The news was revealed by OpenSea on Tuesday by OpenSea's Twitter account. No specific date was given, only that support would go live in April. Solana's native token, SOL, is up 25% on the week, with the chart showing a market push from $110 to $120 in the day following the OpenSea announcement. The total market cap of Solana NFT projects also experienced a nice bump, jumping 12.38% on Wednesday to $1.7 billion, according to hyperspace.xyz. Crypto Worldwide Regulation Roundup The European Union began another set of negotiations on its markets in Crypto Assets, or MICA, regulatory package on Thursday. MICA aims to simplify the expansion of crypto businesses throughout the EU by standardizing rules for crypto issuers, service providers, and stablecoins. MICA recently made headlines after a proof-of-work ban was inserted in Parliament before getting cut from the package at the last moment. In related European news, two committees in European Parliament voted on amendments that could potentially block EU-based crypto exchanges and service providers from interacting with crypto addresses they cannot verify. As of recording time, Patrick Hansen, head of strategy and biz dev at Unstoppable DeFi, reports that the committees will vote in favor of a crackdown on unhosted wallets. Hansen says, however, that the final vote will take a few months to occur 
and that he is optimistic that we can still achieve changes. India passed a capital gains law that will see crypto gains taxed at a rate of 30% starting April 1st. In addition, Indian citizens will pay a 1% tax deducted at source on every purchase or sale of crypto, as well as taxes on crypto gifts beginning July 1st. Furthermore, taxpayers will not be able to take deductions on losses. Nishal Shetty, the co-founder of India's largest exchange, WazirX, told Coindesk that this was a big mistake. This is not conducive for the government or the crypto ecosystem of India. It is poised to do more harm than good, said Shetty. This can result in cascading participation on Indian exchanges and lead to a rise in capital outflow to foreign exchanges. Coinbase Global will soon require customers in Canada, Japan, and Singapore sending crypto to other exchanges to provide the name and address of the recipient. When asked for a response, here's what Coinbase had to say to Coindesk. While we will always advocate for what we think the law should be, we must respect the laws that exist if we want to offer the suite of Coinbase services to customers in that country. I also want to make it clear that these changes, as outlined in our FAQ, only apply to Canada, Singapore, and Japan, where the laws require us to collect additional information. We are not applying this globally to customers. The new rules will take effect in early April. USDC gets an old custodian. BNY Mellon, one of the oldest banks in the U.S., has agreed to be the primary custodian for USDC's reserve assets. Notably, BNY Mellon's crypto custody unit is powered by crypto infrastructure firm Fireblocks. As of press time, there are over 50 billion USDC in circulation. A country dropped an NFT collection. On Wednesday, the Ministry of Transformation of Ukraine launched an NFT collection of 2,182 pieces of art via the Meta History NFT Museum. Each NFT was drawn by a Ukrainian artist and depicts an event from the war. While Ukraine had previously hinted that an NFT drop would take place, it was confirmed for the first time on March 25th by Ukraine's Mikhailo Fedorov. While Russia uses tanks to destroy Ukraine, we rely on revolutionary blockchain tech. At MetaHistory UA NFT Museum is launched. The place to keep the memory of war and the place to celebrate the Ukrainian identity and freedom, explained Fedorov on Twitter. According to MetaHistory's website, 100% of proceeds were sent directly to the ETH address of Ukraine's Ministry of Finance. At 0.15 ETH per mint, this means Ukraine raised an additional 327.2 ETH, worth approximately $1 million, from, by all accounts, the first NFT drop spearheaded by a country. Despite the unprecedented backstory and previous success of Ukraine in leveraging crypto to fundraise, the NFTs were slow to mint. As of Thursday morning, the collection has yet to sell out. Time for fun bits. 2017 again, Ripple and Mt. Gox make for funny headlines in 2022. Mark Karpelis, the former CEO of Mt. Gox, is dropping a collection of 1,066,097 NFTs on Ethereum, with each NFT commemorating and readily able to claim by a single account from Mt. Gox once the individual has gone through a verification process. Mt. Gox was famously hacked in 2014 for roughly 850,000 BTC, which are now worth $40 billion. Owning a Mt. Gox NFT proves you're an OG. You were there in the early days of Bitcoin, and now you can prove it on the blockchain, explains the website. 
In other weird OG news, Ripple co-founder Chris Larson is launching a campaign against Bitcoin's proof-of-work consensus mechanism and has funded a $5 million campaign to convince Bitcoiners to change the code, not the climate. Or, in other words, move to proof-of-stake. Bitcoiners, not surprisingly, did not take kindly to the intrusion, as exemplified by Bitcoin mining expert Zach Vole. Chris Larson of Ripple is funding a $5 million ad campaign advocating for Bitcoin switching to proof of stake. I guess the only thing I have left to say is, fuck off, Chris. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Arjun, the Ronin hack, and bridge security, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchain is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Mark Murdoch, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. 